This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Toronto Mayor John Tory certainly uh, got people talking over the weekend. And I was in Toronto, obviously, for Curry Cup uh, this past weekend. And uh, just whatever place you went, you got talking about road tools. Uh, because this is obviously what Mayor Tory was proposing uh, during a, a speech to the Toronto Board of Trade, which is like their Chamber of Commerce. Uh, he suggested that both the Don Valley Parkway and the Gardner should be tolled. Uh, what $2 he's suggesting would be the toll to drive on those roads. And he said, and reiterated it yesterday, doubling down on this, that it's time for the fellow 905ers to pay up their fair share for Toronto Highways and Toronto Transit. And uh, he's being adamant about this. Um, it's an interesting concept, but, I mean, we're in a whole different realm now of municipal politics and, and I guess, politics in general and how they get, get their money. Uh, is he right to suggest this? And is he on the right track? And are people going to embrace this sort of an idea? Let me bring Jonathan Hall into the conversation. Uh, Mr. Hall is the assistant professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Toronto. Jonathan, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you on the show today. Thank you for having me. Were you surprised by Mayor Tory's uh, assessment and, and his his request? No. Like, it seems normal that we ask people who use the resource to pay for it. So we ask those who use the subway, they pay a fare to help cover the cost of that. And so those using the Don Valley Parkway, the gardener also should pay a fare. In this case, we call it a toll, but it's kind of the same fundamental idea to use those resources and help pay for their maintenance and upkeep. We're in a different era, though, aren't we? Because in past governments, whether it's provincial, municipal, or, or federal, I guess, for that matter, uh, no, I, I don't think any politician that ever had any ambitions to get reelected would ever <laughs> propose something like this. No, I mean, the truth is people hate tolls. I mean, all of us hate if there's something we used to get for free and someone says, hey, you know, we now want you to help cover the cost. Like, it's just totally natural for our reaction to be, wait, this is horrible. I liked getting the thing for free. I think when I was a student and they, you know, added a charge for printing, I was upset about it, even though I understood that it would mean we'd think, you know, we would be less wasteful in what we printed. And it was probably the world was a better place for this. Same thing with roads. You know, when we pay for our use of the roads, we're going to be more thoughtful in how we use them. But there was a there was a disconnect, though, wasn't there, Jonathan? As you mentioned, use the example of, for instance, bus fares or or things of this nature. Yeah. That we we see, okay, we can do that. I guess that's the way things should be. But the roads, well, we already paid for the roads, uh, you know, so so we should be able to just drive up and down and do whatever we want. Uh, and and not have to worry about things like upkeep and everything because that's why again the phrase I'm I hear all the time which I'm sure you've heard too is well for the money I pay in taxes I should get this 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 and this. And I, I, so I totally empathize with that and I think it's a very natural reaction. You know the people on the subways can make the same argument. Uh, they paid a lot in taxes. Those subways were built you know using money from income taxes and other sorts of taxes. And, you know, one thing I want to stress and I think is helpful to remember, like there's kind of two conversations we could have. One conversation would be about what should the size of government be and what should the government's budget be? And a second one would be how should we pay for that? And, you know, once, you just, once we've settled on an amount the government should spend, which you know, we're not going to settle in the next five minutes, but <laughs> then we could say, hey, do we want to pay for this with income taxes or property taxes or do we want to pay for it with user fees like a road toll? And the benefit of a road toll over something like a property tax or income tax is income taxes have negative side effects. That is, an income tax discourages you from working, and that's a bad thing. A road toll, if it's done right so that it's like high during rush hour, but you know, it might be free or just very low on the weekends or outside of rush hour, all it does is it encourages the re- proper use of the road. So it has like positive side effects. So given that we need to raise revenue, 
this is a great way to do it. But I do under, you know, I'm a taxpayer like you. I understand the the feeling of, hey, the government's reaching in my pocket one more time. And I understand that frustration. I just think we need to think about, given that we have a government, how do we want to pay for it? Where does the disconnect and the incongruity come into play here that the people want more for less? And and that that's that's an a ridiculous concept, really, when it comes especially to municipal politics, where essentially the only two ways that municipal governments can raise money is either through property taxes or user fees. I think it's just, I think we all do this. My kids do this. I do it. You know, I want more for less. I think some of it, we're just used to it. We're used to not, we haven't, don't have a tradition of having tolls in Toronto. And we have the 407, but most roads have been provided by the government. And, you know, and kind of throughout human history, Local roads have typically been provided for free. Well, often, if you go back, you find a lot of the initial turnpikes, the initial kind of highways, actually were toll roads. Uh, but we've gotten away from that, and I think it's just a change from the status quo, and that is upsetting. Maybe, I, I guess the, the, the mindset here is, is okay, I, I can rationalize this if I know that there's going to be an end date to it. And I'll give you an example. Uh, here in Hamilton, of course, we've got the Skyway Bridge that, uh, that crosses over uh, as you're heading on your way to Niagara, back on the other way. Uh, and when it was initially built, I was just a little kid at the time, there was a toll. I think it was only 15 cents or something like that. But the government of the day, the provincial government of the day, rationalized it by saying, well, let's to pay for the bridge. And once the bridge is paid for, we'll stop the toll. And, in fact, they did once they got to whatever that dollar figure was. But people paid it knowing that, well, it's not going to last forever, and they, they get used to it. Uh, so I don't know that there was a whole lot of outrage. Why the outrage about this now? So uh, I do think people, ha- it's easier when you see the connection between what the money is going for and, you know, how you're paying it. And so I think tolls that pay for a road are often easier to accept. Now, we don't seem to have the same outrage, you know, with an income tax or a property tax. And in some ways, these are the same thing. This is the way of raising revenue. And with the road tolls, uh, you know, the road, they should, it was often helpful politically, though maybe not ideal for public finance in general, to say, hey, the money for this road toll is going to stay in help improving the transportation network in the greater Toronto area. But, I mean, honestly, I don't know that they need to do that or should. I do think it helps people feel better about it, though. If, in fact, they can actually you know, quantify this and say, well, it's going to fix that road. I mean, and again, I'm trying to connect the dots here, and maybe the, the, the taxpayers that are pushing back on this right now haven't or don't want to connect those dots. Is How many years now has there been a debate going on in Toronto, Jonathan, about uh, fixing the gardener or tearing the gardener down because it's falling down anyway? So I just moved here three years ago, but it's been going on, I've gotten the sense, long before that. So, you know, where, which raises the next question, well, where's the money going to come from then? If you want to keep the gardener, and, and I think that seems to be the, the political decision right now, that it has to be repaired, well, you've got, to, you've got to fundraise for that, don't you? Right, exactly. And this is something that's somewhat hard with this, and I think this is what motivates uh, these maybe uh, less than thrilling comments you hear where they're like, oh, we want the 905 to help pay is through this weird like history in Toronto, the gardener and DVP are the responsibility of the city of Toronto. But like when the 401 goes through Mississauga or the 403 goes through Oakville, like those cities don't all of a sudden become responsible for maintaining those roads. And so there is a real sense in which uh, the cost of maintaining the gardener and the DVP come out of the taxpayers of those who live in Toronto, even though it's a benefit to those who live all over the GTA. 
And I think that's what's motivating part of this, this sense of like, hey, we want you know, everyone who uses the road to pay for them. I realize this wouldn't be popular with those listening, but like, we'd probably be better off if we had a toll on the 403 and the 401 and these other roads. And if they set the toll with the idea, we want to have the toll as low as we can while keeping traffic moving smoothly. And that would give us a toll that was you know, very low or even free at nights and on the weekends, but during rush hour, it might be you know, five, maybe even $7 to drive all the way in from Hamilton to downtown Toronto. Which is maybe the, the the mindset that a lot of the the states are doing down south of the border right now. Anybody yeah. who's driven on interstates would know that many of those, especially through New York, uh, are tolled roads. The the interstate is a tolled highway there. But the charge is minimal. Uh, so nobody really seems to pay much attention nor care much about doing something like that. But it's supposed to be going for ongoing maintenance for the roads. Uh, but we just, we definitely, maybe, maybe we're just catching up to where they've been for the last 40 or 50 years. I think it's right. If we want to keep our roads in good repair and maintain these, we have to pay for them. And it's it's reasonable to ask those who use them to pay for them. Is it Part of the problem here, Jonathan, is that, that people maybe don't actually understand uh, about how municipal governments uh, do derive their revenue and how they get this. I mean, you know, because we think of taxation and, and, and just the mindset seems to be, well, you know, per, provincial and federal tax comes off my paycheck. Those uh, SOBs take that. I never get that. I never even see it. And they just go and spend it on whatever they want. But municipal governments, it's almost the reverse process, isn't it, where they actually sit down uh, the council, that is, and does a budget and says, this is what we want to do this year. Here are the services we want. Uh, here are the projects we want to build or repair. This is the cost. And then, okay, here's your, your share, here's your share, here's your share. It's a totally reverse process yet, but so which kind of deflates or I guess really negates the argument that, well, for the taxes I pay, because the answer to that is for the taxes you pay, that's what you get. If right. you want more, you're going to have to pay more some way or another. I mean, that's exactly right. I think there's a, an, a valuable debate that we have every election about what the role of government should be. And this debate right now is how should we fund the government we already have said we wanted through the political process. Uh, and we want to fund it in a way that is better for society, and this one is one of those ways. But you're right, it's often a disconnect between understanding what we pay for and what we get, and that, that makes Kennedy's decisions often harder. So from a, a financial and economic standpoint, there's a, there's a strong argument, and you've presented it very well. I appreciate that. But I saw the headline in the Toronto Sun on the weekend as I was in town there for the Grey Cup festivities, and burbs push back. And, and, uh, and I've heard from the, the suburban mayors, and you know, I guess they actually resent being called suburban mayors when you talk about other cities. Right. But, but they clearly don't want this to happen. Is, is that political posturing, or is there a philosophical argument against this? I mean, I think the GTA as a whole will be better off as a result. Are there going to be people, individual people who are hurt? Absolutely. I mean, there's, it's a pretty rare government policy that doesn't kind of help some people and hurt others, even if it makes our nation and our cities better. And so is this a good thing for Mississauga? I actually think this is a good policy for people who commute on these roads. My guess is we could talk a year from, you know, a year after they implement this, and you'd have a bunch of people calling in saying, you know, hey, I love that I don't have to spend 30 minutes stuck in traffic and, you know, the potholes are fixed and all this stuff. And while having a few being like, you know what, I make so little money that, you know, paying $5 to drive into work has really hurt me. But then most of the people would be happy. So I think Mississauga and the other uh, kind of communities that make up the GTA and Brampton, they'll end up better off for this. I think if we're going to end up in a world where we end up with tolls on all of our roads, 
which I realize most listeners are probably not happy to want to consider that, but that would be better. There is an issue of like making sure these tools all work well together. Um, and so I would think the only ground they would really have to complain would be something like, hey, because Toronto is moving first, they're going to be in a better position with the tolls on their roads than we will when we add them to ours. Well, you got to know that, that maybe this isn't the, the thing to be saying publicly from a political expedient standpoint, but the, you've got to think that other municipalities are seeing what's going on in Toronto and waiting because if it's, if it's going to go there, they're going to figure, hey, we've got to do this too. Because they're all in, they're all in the same financial crunch that, that Toronto is really when it comes down to raising revenue for the work that needs to be done. Right. I agree. The uh, the example I, I tried to use in discussing this with some of the folks downtown Toronto on the weekend, too, is I said the 407, of course. And I remember, of course, when that was built and told, and, and people said, this is ridiculous. It's terrible. You know, we paid for that road to get built, and, and now we have to pay to use it. And in the initial stages there, as I recall, Jonathan, I didn't go on the road very often, but it was hardly any traffic. I, I will use it now, on, a, on a, not on a regular basis, but if I'm in a hurry to get someplace, uh, and it's not cheap. Uh, it's it's a lot more than two bucks. I got to tell you. Yeah. But it gets me to where I want to go with a lot less hassle and and a lot more convenience. And and you're right. I think uh, once people start doing this and they start realizing that hey, maybe I can get someplace faster, it might be worth the two bucks or four bucks each day for for me to do that. I agree completely. And I think the big difference between what they what Toronto should do on the Don Valley Parkway and the Gardner and the 407. The 407 is owned by a company that's trying to maximize profits. And so their tolls are much higher than we would see, you know, if the province or Toronto decides to toll their highways. And But you're right. It provides this great option to people who are in a hurry. And that's all of us some of the time. It may not be all of us every day, but all of us have times we really need to be somewhere quick. I mean, if I'm going into Toronto to go see a, a Blue Jays game or a Leaf game at the ACC, whatever the case might be, I, I don't want to spend 45 minutes stuck in gridlock traffic on the Gardner, especially when, you know, the game's going to start in 15 minutes. You want to get there as as quickly as possible. Is it going to, though? Because you know that what, the, one of the subtexts of the argument here is will this push people to public transit as opposed to, to taking their vehicles? Will that happen? So, yes. Yeah, people, all of us every day make a choice about how to travel, like, car versus train, when to travel early in the morning versus kind of right at the peak, uh, and all these other choices. And this toll, I mean, there's just lots of evidence. We've seen these tolls be implemented in many places, and you see people make change their behavior in response. And something that's nice is people often talk about this like, oh, they're trying to get me out of my car onto the train. And the answer is we want those people for whom making that switch is easy to make that switch. But if you're someone whom that switch is hard, then, yeah, we want you to stay on the road, and the toll will get these other people out of your way. And likewise, but that's not the only way you can change your behavior. You can change your behavior by saying, hey, you know, instead of driving at, like, 9 in the morning, I'll go in early at 6 or 7 to beat the toll, because the toll should be lower at that time. And people often say things like, well, wait, I have to be at work right on time. And you know what? Probably half, half of people commuting to work do. But the other half actually have a fair bit of flexibility and what time they get, get to work. And a toll can help them think about how can I arrange my time, my travel time, or my choice of how to get to work in a way that makes traffic better for everyone. So then this has to be done in concert then. I mean, the, the move to public transit or the, the, the inclination to maybe use that as the alternative is certainly an intended consequence of this idea. But the other end of that, uh, that argument is you've, you've got to ramp up your public transit and make it convenient and affordable for people. Uh, it's certainly convenient, affordable. We want, in both cases, it would be ideal if people 
face the full cost of the service, and then we get the ideal, the right usage of it. Right. So this isn't a call that we should like further subsidize public transit because if you're going to use the road, you should pay what that costs. If you're going to take transit, you should pay what that costs. And if we're worried that there's people for whom that's too expensive, the issue isn't really that transit's expensive; it's that they don't have enough money. And then we should just directly deal with that uh, that issue. At, at the risk of dragging you into the political vortex of uh, prognostication here, Jonathan, is this actually going to happen? Is there a political will to make this happen? You know, I know probably know better than you about that. I am hopeful that it happens. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. One of the ongoing stories in, in this community over the last number of years, really, has been the housing market. Uh, and I guess really, like so many other things, it depends on perspective, right? I mean, if you're in the market for a house right now, that can be somewhat problematic. If you're selling a house, I guess that's good news. But the concern here is the way prices are going. And and, uh, the word that we need to be talking about here, I think more often than not here, is affordability. As prices go up and uh, full-time jobs increase, Hamiltonians apparently are starting to move to some areas like Brantford and St. Catharines and Caledonia just to be able to afford to buy a house. That's not what we had intended when we started talking about a great housing market. I want to bring uh, Renee Wetzler into the conversation. Renee is a senior social planner with the Social Planning and Research Council here in Hamilton. Renee, welcome to the program. Good to have you back with us. How are you doing? I'm very well, Bill, and how are you today? I'm fabulous. Uh, a little troubled by this. Uh, I'd Like I say, the good news is, is that if you're selling your house right now, uh, you're probably going to get more money than you ever thought you were going to. But the, the, let's, let's bring the word affordability uh, into the discussion here. And I know that was, uh, that was the, the topic uh, just a couple of days ago, of course, uh, when we, you had this, uh, this seminar and this thing that was going on about housing prices. Talk to us about that. Yeah, sure. The theme of the day last Friday uh, in recognition of National Housing Day was building balanced neighborhoods. And certainly for Hamilton, you know, as the David Bowie song was just singing there, Ch- changes are coming. Um, you know, we do see, you know, what you described in terms of housing prices and more local people being pushed out of the market. In terms of affordability, what we're seeing certainly is that uh, there are different sectors of the population who simply can't either buy a home or buy into the current local market. And then there's also the question of affordability in the rental market as well. You may have read this morning that younger people are staying at home, so we may see some vacancy rates going up in the rental sector, but certainly it's not enough to give the bump that we need given the the housing pressures we have over the whole housing continuum. Certainly when we hear about the housing stability benefit uh, being cut back, that means less people would have maybe uh, access to funds that would keep them in their housing, we're going to see pressures across the system in different ways. And I think the conversation around home ownership is just a part of a bigger conversation. We've used uh, the phrase, of course, affordable housing many, many times, and we've talked to city councillors about this. We've talked to federal politicians and provincial politicians and, and other members of the of the council of, of which you're a member. But I think a lot of people, Renee, look at this is still in the abstract. In other words, if they're okay in their environment, they've got a place to live, an apartment, a condo, a house, whatever it might be. You think, well, that's too bad that you know we need affordable housing. But this is really starting to strike home with a lot of people right now whose, as you say, employment situations could be changing at times, and all of a sudden they're going to find themselves in that same conundrum. Yeah, and the other piece of it, too, is, of course, that, as we know, our urban boundary has been frozen now for a number of years. 
which is good, right? We want to keep the green belt accessible to grow food, food insecurity, certainly another issue relates to this. But what this means is that we have intensification happening. So the question that we were delving into on Friday is, how do we take this and drive it as an opportunity to move deeper into neighborhoods without displacing people and being able to work with them so people have choice? As we work to more, towards mi- mixed income uh, development, mixed income neighborhoods, uh, mixed uses, how can we build on the assets that we have currently in those neighborhoods and work together? Certainly, we've talked about things like community hubs. So, for people maybe on a lower income scale, it might mean them being able to access healthcare or other supports closer in their neighborhoods, so less stresses on transit and things like that. And certainly, um, being able to, you know, uh, live, work, and play in your neighborhood is really important. And so intensification gives us that opportunity to do it. But again, I want to stress that displacement is a big concern, right? It's kind of another side of the gentrification question. Some people think gentrification is good. Obviously, it brings more healthy development, what they term as healthy development. But the downside is that people on the lower income scale usually end up losing out and they have to move. So we have a bit of forced migration happening that we have to deal with. Well, the numbers for this are staggering. And, and you know, when we hear that, well, Toronto people can't afford to live in Toronto anymore, so they're coming here. Uh, that's that's good. Hey, we're happy about that. That's, you know, that that's fabulous. But it's driving prices up here. The average uh, price, I guess, for a house in Hamilton uh, last September was five hundred eleven thousand dollars, yeah, uh, and and that's up almost a hundred thousand dollars over the year before. Uh, the average price of a house in, for instance, Brantford, by comparison, is about three hundred and sixty-six thousand dollars. So you can see if somebody finds themselves in a squeeze like this, they're simply going to say, "We we simply can't afford to live here anymore," because uh, you don't have the housing stock in the price range that we can afford. So they start going someplace else. Yeah. Yeah, and so, and that's not really, you know, good for our community to have that brain drain happening, certainly. We want to keep people in our community. We want to keep people of all levels of income and abilities and, you know, interests in our community. Certainly, that's what... uh, Hamilton strives to be. So building a balanced neighborhood, I really want to come back to that is, uh, you know, the role of engagement, the role of talking to people, bringing uh, the private sector together with people in neighborhoods, with our kind of great agency sector network that we have, we can really work together to address some of these problems. I know that Bill 7 is... uh, coming into effect certainly very soon around inclusionary zoning. So this would mandate uh, local municipalities to have some tools around, you know, what can we uh, what can we get out of development that's coming, you know, so that a percentage of those, pro- those uh, units that are built are affordable. What I'm, what's troubling for me certainly is that with the West Harbor development, they're talking about inclusionary zoning, but they've set the target only at 5%, which I don't think really addresses, you know, what the need is around affordable housing. We haven't done a very good job of that historically in the city, have we? No, we haven't. And part of the problem is we don't have a national housing strategy. Certainly when the province divested itself of the responsibility around social housing in the 90s, we haven't been able to recover from that. So we see huge backlogs in the in the public sector around their tall buildings, particularly, right? These are huge structures that need all kinds of repairs. So <clears throat> even if we have a vacancy rate, that's a little better. You know, we certainly have a lot of issues around the the quality of housing as well. And so we certainly need public investment in this. We need a national housing strategy. And we also need our municipality to certainly see this as a larger issue in our community, but also as an opportunity as we see new interest and new growth investment coming into Hamilton. I would submit, though, Renee, and I know you have done an awful lot of research on this as well, 
that uh, that every level of government's got a responsibility here. And I know the city is, first of all, going to say, well, you know, we just don't have the same financial resources as the feds in the province to do this sort of thing. But they do have rules that they could be sticking by, and they don't do a very good job of that, or at least haven't historically anyway, when, oh, it, comes, when it comes to zoning and things of this nature. Other cities have done a much better job of planning neighborhoods. Ha- Hamilton, not so much in, in past years anyway. No, I know it's been a, a bit of a chock-a-block kind of development plan, and then with you know the sprawl that we have experienced, it's created in some cases sections of our community where we may have social housing that's really far away from service. I know certainly right now on the South Mountain, in your old stomping grounds, Bill, on the South Mountain, we're doing some community development work with social housing providers. And so what we see there is a lot of social housing, but it was developed in a way that, you know, public transportation is not accessible, services aren't accessible. So we see people isolated in some of, in some cases. Again, coming back to the idea of building balanced neighborhoods and asking our local politicians to really engage in this, not just in conversation, but as you said, in legislative action. They will have an opportunity through Bill 7 to put inclusionary zoning into place, but they have to give it some teeth. Certainly 5% is not what... uh, you know, the people I talk to seeing a good enough threshold, we want like 20 to 25 percent of any new housing development to have 25 percent of that, you know, as affordable. And it, and again, affordability is a questionable term, but it needs to be linked to income. I think that that's really important, too, in Hamilton. The other tool that our municipality has is to enact a living wage for our community. Certainly, if living wage was a baseline for income in this city, we would see being, uh, affordability come into play for a lot more Hamiltonians. Well, let's destroy a myth here that I'm, I'm sure is being conjured up in the minds of some of the people that are listening to this conversation right now, is they equate affordable housing with slums uh, and simply say, well, this is going to be crappy places that people aren't going to look after, and I don't want anything like that in my neighborhood. So, Because uh, i got to tell you, I was, I was, the nine years I was on city council, I was on planning all nine years. And I'd hear that when people came forward with the development and said, we don't want that sort of stuff here. We don't want those kinds of people there. And nothing could be further from the truth, of course, but yet that seems to be the stumbling block for an awful lot of development. Absolutely. But again, I come back to having that engaged conversation with people where they live in their neighborhoods so that nimbyism doesn't pop up uh, as a development happens. I live across the street, Deirdre and I live across the street from a really great affordable housing project that also houses uh, shelter spaces, shelter beds for women in this community who, uh, you know, are either fleeing abuse or experiencing other reasons for their homelessness. And it's a wonderful complex is added to our community. Certainly the affordability in our neighborhood has not dropped because of that uh, affordable housing complex in our neighborhood. And in fact, prices have gone up. You know, a house uh, on the corner of my street in Strathcona neighborhood just sold for over $900,000. And it's only half a block away from an affordable housing uh, building and a women's shelter. So, you know, that challenges that whole dialogue. We can have balanced and mixed neighborhoods. Well, and it doesn't mean cheap. Uh, it, what it means is, as you say, the geared to income. I mean, I can remember years ago visiting a friend of mine over on the West Mountain. Uh, it had an apartment. I thought, that's a pretty nice building. I said it was relatively new. And he says, yeah, it's geared to income. I said, who knew? So yeah. and and the way that works basically is is that you obviously make application and and you there's there's you know full discovery about you know what your financial situation is but you may just under a hypothetical situation you might be paying less rent than your neighbor right next door to you who's got the exact same style of apartment because it's based on income uh, and the neighbor doesn't know what you pay and you don't know what the neighbor pays so who loses in this 
That's right. That's right. And there's a whole destigmatization because, again, you you said earlier, people are characterized sometimes by their income or by where they live, which really is a travesty, right? You know, when you think about it, housing is a human right. We need to deliver on this and not stigmatizing people because of their income. And then also making sure that people who don't have the income have really good quality housing. So I'm encouraged to hear that you had that experience. And Certainly, that's not the experience of a lot of Hamiltonians. And even within private development, we're seeing turnovers in buildings. We're seeing, you know, as we saw last year, we're seeing landlords bribing people to leave their units so they can fix them up and put the rent up. And so, again, we need to have deeper conversations. And certainly, you know, we have fought back a few against a few of the big developers who've come to Hamilton to get them to slow down and really work with us instead of work against us. And again, you know, city city council is a key player, and yes, they do have the tools, or they can act the tools to make this happen. Certainly, you know, if in your neighborhood you're feeling challenged by some of this stuff, talk to your city councillor and uh, find out what she or he is saying on this particular conversation and get them to bring it to the council table. You know, again, I hate to say it, but winter's coming. We're facing yet another crisis around homelessness. Women are still being turned away from shelter between 300 and 500 times per month, and it's unacceptable. I mean, again, in a city that has such great assets and wealth in Hamilton, I think we can do better. And I agree, you know, council hasn't done the most. And uh, certainly Joanne Prowl's call to the councillors yesterday to make sure we top up the housing stability benefit. You know, it's a bit of a, a canary in the coal mine there. We've got to get on this. And, you know, with good development and good investment and working with developers who have good intention, I think we can have something good happen. One of the great frustrations uh, back in those days was when you look at plans, and, and the simplest way to maybe explain this is uh, when you, you're looking at a neighbourhood, invariably on a main artery, a main street, what you want is high intensification, so like apartment buildings, things of this nature, and then it grades down further, maybe townhomes and things, and eventually into single-family residential in the inner part of the development. And and you look at some of the housing developments in the South Mountain that you just referred to a little while ago, Renee, and this, these, yeah. these, this dates back years now. Uh, it's all single family, and and I asked a couple of colleagues that have been around, like, why? What did that? How did that happen? I mean, that's not the way it was supposed to be built. And they just kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, well, you know, I got pressure from this group and this one here, and this developer wanted this, and this neighborhood, you know, refused to do this. And you can't cave in. I mean, you've got to stick to your guns if you develop a plan like this. And yeah. like I say, historically, the city has not done that. They seem to be getting that message now, though. Yeah, they are getting that message now, and I know that there are some of the larger social housing providers who are really putting pressure on council. You know, their uh, agreements on uh, with CMHC on the mortgages on a lot of these properties are up early next year, and there hasn't but a, a plan been put in place. If there's no plan in some neighbourhoods, this could mean the loss of up to 300 units in a neighbourhood. So these some of these social housing providers are really pressuring the, the municipality to say, look, we have this asset, and uh, can we work together maybe to create some affordable home ownership programs so we can transfer some of this asset into people who have, may have or need a bit of a lift but can get into home ownership. And again, we've heard, you know, mostly just crickets right now, but uh, certainly, you know, doing having this kind of conversation with you, Bill, and uh, pushing this in with residents in their neighborhoods and getting them to realize that they have a vocal say in this, uh, how development happens, and it can be responsible. And, you know, uh, development is not necessarily evil, but if it's not done in dialogue with local people, that's when things can turn bad. 
Well, I, I mean, because both sides have to be listened to. I get that. But at the same token, I mean, council has to be adamant and say, well, this is the way this has to be planned. And, and people have to know that going in and, and not caving into, as you say, the nimbyism that occurs in some of these situations anyway. And, and to yeah. go back to my example from, from, you know, visiting my friend over in the West Mountain, there's no big sign out front that says this is an affordable housing unit. This is geared to income. You don't know. Yeah. You know, driving by, you don't know even if, uh, you know, if, if you live next door to it, you don't know. You just know that it's another development. So, I mean, we really have to attack the stigma that's, I think, surrounding an awful lot of this discussion. Absolutely, absolutely. And we better not be walking into any, uh, you know, civic buildings in the city wearing a Trump hat anymore. It's just deplorable. <laughs> and I think it says something about our community, you know, as coming together and pushing it back against any negative racist or dialogue that, uh, you know, condemns people for their income or their identity in any form. I got a couple of minutes left here. I got to ask you, I mean, we, we've outlined the problem. We've talked about the problem. Councillors are finally starting to talk about the problem here, and you, you, I think, dug down a little deeper at National Housing Day, and you got some of the statistics out there that I think we need to have as part of the conversation. What's the solution? I mean, I mean, you got like 90 seconds here, Renee. Solve this problem for us, would you please? No, no problem. Well, we did have Art Eggleton come and speak. He's Senator Art Eggleton now, yeah. of course, former mayor of Toronto. And, you know, he was really talking about, as a senator, what the national housing strategy could look like. Uh, you know, there's opportunity to, to uh, for the feds to tap into investment through the CPP. We can do amendments to the Bank Act. We can do changes in tax taxation policy uh, that offers, you know, developers incentives based on the type in, uh, of structure that we're talking about. Repurposing lands, certainly the city of Hamilton is sitting on a lot of lands, and so is the, fe- is the federal government. These lands can be purposed into affordable housing. So we need to leverage growth that benefits all. We need to really be proactive and, you know, understand that migration happens across the city. As Jane Jacobs says, the city is a breathing uh, machine. It's a huge, you know, it's a very organic machine and we need to allow for that uh, compression and that contraction to happen and, and happen well. The city has a role, but it can't solve all our problems. And it must be a partnership where we work on all of this together. If, if we don't do something, the, the concern here is, and the, you know, the the headline says, well, Hamiltonians who can't afford to buy the uh, the increased pricing housing here in Hamilton are going to go to places like Caledonia, Brantford. Eventually, it's going to happen there too. I mean, this is this is cyclical. I mean, at some point, you've got to break the cycle. Absolutely. And again, a national housing strategy is key to all of this. All the things I just identified there, you know, in terms of Bank Act and all that kind of stuff. It can happen. It is within reach. We have a government that's maybe ready to listen to this. So please, you know, I call upon your listeners to make sure they're engaged at a local level, but stay engaged at a political level as well. It's interesting you bring this up, too, because we've always talked about government's responsibility here, all three levels of that. But the private sector, you're right, has to play a role in here. And and the Bank Act is part of that as well. I mean, to make mortgages more affordable and, and easier to access for some people. Uh, th- there's got, I think, be a realization in, in this discussion that uh, that you can't do one size fits all. There's got to have to be different programs tailored for different income levels. That's right. And again, the housing stability benefit, as we read, you know, is uh, depleted again. And I know that I will be getting calls from people that I know in neighborhoods are going to be in crisis because they can't make the last month's rent. They've had a bed bug problem. They have to throw their furniture out or whatever. So, you know, if developers are listening to this conversation, they need to hear the daily lived reality of people who uh, experience poverty. And if they can't face that, then, you know, it's not a developer that I want working in my town. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. 
This is a, a rather bizarre story, and uh, about a bizarre story, I suppose. The uh, Badger trial, of course, is uh, going on right now. This is the fourth time that this individual has been uh, tried for the murder of a Stony Creek lady years, many, many years ago. Uh, Susan Claremont, of course, is the award-winning journalist with the Hamilton Spectator. She's been covering the trial, and she joins us on the program. I, I bring her up to speed, or bring you up to speed on some of the stuff that's going on. Susan, first of all, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thanks, Bill. Uh, in, in a trial of, of bizarre twists and turns, I mean, the very fact that this is the fourth time that this guy's been tried for this murder is is bizarre in and of itself. But your last two columns have just been eye-opening for the, the those of us that are trying to follow what's going on here. I mean, let me deal with them in reverse order, because uh, I want you to talk about the one that comes on here today about uh, Juror Doe, and explain just what happened, if you could. Yeah, um, so the beginning of this trial back in the middle of September, uh, I was here in Kitchener for the jury selection, um, all sort of a normal part of the process, um, but uh, the day uh, that the trial was supposed to open, uh, opening remarks from the Crown Attorney, uh, I, I checked my email super early that morning, as I always do, and uh, was surprised to see that I had an email from someone who called themselves Juror Doe and claimed to be a juror at the Badgero trial. Um, they'd emailed me asking me if I would be interested in getting insider information from the jury room. Have you ever, in all the years you've been doing this, ever seen anything like this before? No. <laughs> no, I haven't. I, um, you know, it, it's, it's not unusual for me to talk to jurors after a trial. Um, lots of them get in touch with me uh, after the verdict is in, and I've even done interviews with jurors and written stories about that. Um, but to have a current sitting juror reach out to me in the middle of, uh, of a trial, at the start of a trial, is um, has never happened before, and it's hugely inappropriate and problematic and possibly even illegal. I, I mean, when I read this this morning, I thought, this is, this, this is like fiction. I, I mean, this is like a Scott Thurow novel, you know, a courtroom drama. And, and, you know, you just think, wow, what's going on? So what, how did, what did you do? I mean, it, it had to I'll knock you on your, your seat for a minute to see something like this. It, it, well, honestly, my, my first thought was, oh, damn it. Why did you do this? You know, why have you have you gone and done such a stupid thing? Um, because it puts the trial at risk and it puts me at risk personally um, if I don't do the right thing with that email. But, you know, fortunately, Bill, I have been at this a long time and I know what the rules are. I know what my obligations are. So I knew immediately that I needed to... Um, to do the right thing and disclose the email to the Crown Attorney. Which uh, which you did, and what happened then? I, uh, I, I guess there was previously a conversation, obviously, with your editors about this, was there? Yeah, at about 5.30 that morning. Yeah. Um, there was a, a flurry of emails uh, with my, my city editor and the spectator's lawyer, and you know, it was a no-brainer for all of us. We all agreed immediately that I needed to, to tell the Crown about the emails. Um, uh, partly to protect the integrity of the trial, but also to protect me because I didn't want to be in a position of being charged with contempt of court for not 
telling anybody about the email. So um, so I, I sat down with a Crown attorney and a homicide detective, and a, a full investigation was, was launched into the email, which involved... Um, you know, IT people at um, at my newspaper, um, police forensic IT investigators. Um, it involved a uh, it's called a production order being served on Google head offices in California in order to trace the email. Um, and uh, of course, uh, Justice Patrick Flynn, who is presiding over the Badger trial, uh, had to be informed as well. Uh, if we learned anything, of course, uh, from you know the the Millard Smith murder trial, of course, uh, that you covered so well, uh, it's that these things are very traceable. It's just a matter of knowing which doors to knock on and who to ask about this. And I guess that was the case here too. Absolutely, uh, it, it took a couple of days, um, two days, in fact, in which uh, in which the jury didn't sit. The the trial was delayed by two days because of this email. And and I should mention that. Uh, that there was a second email the next day um, uh, that said, uh, I hope I'm not the cause of the delay in this trial. Um, and in fact, of course, <laughs> they were entirely the cause for the delay. Um, but the email was traced and uh, the it was traced to the home of one of the jurors. And that juror was hauled in front of the judge and questioned in the courtroom. Interestingly, that's an interesting point about this as well, that uh, that obviously uh, at this case, at this point rather, the judge is aware of this, the Crown is aware of this, I assume the defense is aware of this as well, Yep. but they can't tell the jurors because if they do, that could possibly taint their approach to what they had to do here. Exactly. So, uh, you know, all the jurors were told was that there was a legal issue that needed to be dealt with. Um, and, uh, and when juror 12... Uh, was eventually brought into the courtroom. Uh, he was brought in without any of the other jurors knowing why he was brought in. Uh, and, and then, you know, the judge questioned him about the emails, uh, which was led to a, a very bizarre exchange in the courtroom um, because Juror 12 claimed that he knew nothing about the emails. So, uh, but obviously, you can't do this investigation. Uh, so this is this is really uh, the crown, and and I guess through uh, through the crown, the police that are doing this investigation. Uh, you've talked to juror twelve. At least they've talked to juror twelve at this stage, and he denies everything. Where do they go from here? Well, at, at that point, it came down to a question of whether it was juror twelve, or in fact, it was, or if in fact it was his his wife, his spouse. Um, and we never really got a clear answer on that, but it was very apparent that it came from one or the other of them. And if it had come from his spouse, then he had disclosed things to his spouse that his spouse shouldn't know. Yeah, they're not, juror, they're not supposed to do that either, are they? That's right. A juror isn't allowed to talk to anybody about their their um, jury duty, uh, including their own family members, their own spouse. So either way... Um, whether it was a juror or his spouse who sent me the emails, um, something had been breached, something had, had gone wrong, uh, and that juror was kicked off the jury. And discharged, but uh, was there a reason given to the rest of the jurors why Juror 12 was no longer there? Nope. <laughs> uh, at, one, at one moment there were 14 jurors, and the next moment there were 13. Um, 
so no, they were never told. And um, of course, you know, uh, the um, the story about Juror 12 uh, was kept under wraps um, thanks to a publication ban until yesterday when the jury uh, became sequestered and began its deliberations. So now I'm free to talk about Juror 12 because um, the rest of the jury won't know anything about it. They won't have access to the media until they have rendered their verdict. Yeah, that's the key um, element on this whole thing, obviously. The only reason we can even talk about this is because the jury is sequestered right now, and they, they can't exactly. hear this conversation. Exactly. Uh, yeah. you, you followed up on this, though, didn't you? I did. Well, As, as a good know, journalist would. Of course. <laughs> I wanted to know what the hell this was all about. I was curious, and... Uh, and it was it was driving me crazy that I was put in this position where someone wanted to tell me stuff and I couldn't even I, I'd never even responded to those initial emails. Um, but once that juror was kicked off the jury, um, I was free to contact them. So I did. I I phoned the home that the email was traced to, and spoke initially with the wife who was very, very angry with me for calling, which I thought was kind of strange, Bill. I mean, someone there wanted to talk to me. Clearly. <laughs> they reached out to me, and now they had their chance to talk to me and uh, and were um, angry that I had called. So um, she told me it wasn't her and that none of this was any of my business and I should just go away. Um, none of your they- business. You're the one that they contacted. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Um, and then juror 12 himself called me. He was, he was a little more reasonable, um, and polite, but also claimed that it wasn't him who sent the emails. And, um, although he acknowledged that it came from someone in his home and we know, um, because of the exchange with the judge in court, we know that, um, it's the juror, it's his wife and it's two young kids who live in that house. So, so I, I never got a clear answer from anybody about what this was all about and what what they wanted to happen. I, I my suspicion is that they watched a lot of American TV and and thought that perhaps I would pay them for information related to the trial. But that happens in the, the U.S. and in the U.K. But we don't do that here in Canada. Uh, I have never my newspaper has never play, paid a a source for information. You made an interesting point in your uh, piece today, though, Susan, as you were talking about this in, in chambers with the uh, the judge, uh, where he admitted that time that he forgot to actually give that as part of the charge to the jury about the fact that they're not supposed to speak up. I guess he assumed it was just, it was known. Uh, he, he assumed or he just simply forgot. Yeah, it's, it's routine that once the jurors are chosen, um, the judge usually gives a standard little speech yeah. that I've heard a million times that tells them um, exactly what we just talked about, that, that they cannot discuss the case with anybody. Um, but at the Badger case, uh, Justice Flynn failed to do that. And uh, so a lot of people have been asking me on Twitter why Juror 12 wasn't criminally charged with with contempt of court. And, um, and that would be the reason that... It is possible that the juror did not know that they couldn't speak to anybody about it um, because the judge didn't tell him so. However, that whole sort of cloak and dagger, juror Doe, 
you know, um, kind of thing makes me think that they knew they weren't supposed to be talking to me. One of the other things, we've got a couple of minutes left here, and I want to go back for a couple of seconds, if I could, to the piece you wrote the other day, too. Uh, now that the jury is sequestered, and we found this frustration during, of course, the, the, the Millard-Smith murder trial earlier this yes. year, Susan, is uh, information that we know, somebody, but the jury was not allowed to hear during this trial. And and now you're able to talk about that, too, and about uh, the rather shady past that Bajro has, and, and a previous charge against him. That's right. Um, you know, so this jury, who is now uh, deliberating and, and deciding whether uh, Badro is guilty or not of killing Diane Rowendowitz, does not know that he was on trial once before for trying to kill another woman. Um, her name is Debbie Robertson, and she was attacked uh, um, just days and and just blocks away from where Diane was was murdered back in 1981, and uh, Debbie survived. She managed to fight off her attacker, who stabbed her through her ear with a screwdriver. Um, and Debbie remarkably uh, felt that she knew who her attacker was. She, she says that she recognized him as he walked towards her on the darkened street. Um, as she was loaded into an ambulance fighting for her life, they, they really didn't know whether Diane was going to survive or not, or uh, I'm sorry, Debbie was going to survive or not. Um, Debbie, you know, used her last breath to, to tell um, people who she thought it was. She said his name is, is um, uh, you know, she named three names that started with an R, including Rob. And while she was recovering after surgery in hospital, um, homicide detectives brought her her yearbook because she said that she had gone to high school with this guy. And, and she, um, they brought her the Orchard Park yearbook. She looked through it. She found the picture of the man that, that she said attacked her, and she initialed it. And that picture was of Robert Badrow. What happened in that trial? Um, trial began here in Kitchener many years ago. Um, by that point, uh, 18 or 19 or perhaps even 20 years had passed since the attack. Mm. Um, many of the key witnesses, including the lead, um, police investigators had died. Um, some evidence had gone missing. And after about eight or nine days of testimony, the judge on that trial, uh, decided that it was impossible to go forward um, because so much time had passed and uh, said it was unfair to, to Badro to continue, and he stayed the charge against Badro. So nobody has ever been um, convicted in, in the case uh, involving Debbie Robertson. And Debbie's been watching this trial. And that's, Debbie that's... Has, has several times been in the courtroom, which is really, you know, it's an incredible thing, Bill. To Badger, of course, is is um, not in jail. He's he's out and living in Binbrook, and so he is free to walk the halls of the the courthouse every day as his trial goes on. And um, you know, the first day that Debbie came here, I mean, to watch her literally pass Robert Badger in the hallway of the courthouse um, was a, a pretty amazing thing. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.